And this is one of those cases where people wrote me saying, you should put this in. This is an important distinction. And at first I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And so I did my research and I found I was wrong. And so were they. And I put it in here. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we've been talking a lot about your errors that are not errors, and uh, you've got a long enough list. We we're splitting this conversation up into a few parts. I wrap it up today, but I, I wanted to uh, just keep going down the list, and I'm kind of excited about this next one because it has uh, it has some currency that actually is relevant within the last few years. It's the word hopefully, and um, the AP finally in 2012 dropped their objection to using hopefully in a certain way. So what do you have to say about it? Uh, this word has meant it is to be hoped for a very long time, and those who insist it can only mean in a hopeful fashion display more hopefulness than realism. You know, in fact, if that was the real meaning of the word hopefully, um, let's see, she waited hopefully by the roadside uh, when her birthday was, birthday party was about to begin, you know, it would be really rare. You just don't use the normal use of hopefully is by itself saying, hopefully this meeting won't take too long. And it's not modifying one single word. It's modifying an entire sentence. And for some reason, hopefully became the magnet for this complaint. Whereas uh, saying something like, well, fortunately, we won our game today. I've never heard anybody complain that fortunately couldn't be used this way, but it's exactly the same construction. It's taking an adverb, uh, something that typically modifies a verb or another modifier, but uh, you're just modifying the entire thing that you're about to say with this one word, and it's not a construction that is rare or unusual or is restricted only to the word hopefully. Yeah, we use all kinds of words that way, like happily, I found my wallet under the seat of the car, or uh, sadly, she was not able to come to my birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a mystery to me why hopefully got that uh, got tagged with all of the gripes, but it did for a lot of years. But finally, in 2012, the Associated Press removed themselves from the fight and gave in to those of us who have been using it this way and without complaint for a long, long time. Uh, the next one you have, if we could just move on, you have a since and because, and since some people say it cannot be used in the same way you would use because. Since need not always refer to time. Since the 14th century, when it was often spelled S-Y-N, it has also meant seeing that or because. So I, this is another one of those gripes that I wasn't aware existed exactly, but I guess people want to use the word since only in when you're talking about in a time frame. Yeah, I think this belongs in the same category with over, which we talked about last time, more than an over. I think a word that somehow has some connection with numbers so makes people want to be more precise. 
and confine it somehow. And notice how I defiantly use since and precisely the way that people object to in my little entry there. And that's something I delight in doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, now, here's another one that, once again, the finery of the word I have never really understood momentarily. Right. I, I saw somebody objecting to this just the other day on Facebook, so it's it's current. The plane will be landing momentarily, says the flight attendant, and the grumpy grammarian in seat 36B thinks to himself, so we're going to touch down for just a moment. Everyone else thinks, just a moment now before we land. Back in the 1920s, when this use of momentarily was first spreading on both sides of the Atlantic, one might have been accused of misusing the word but by now it's listed without comment as one of the standard definitions in most dictionaries. And this is something you saw somebody complaining about on Facebook? Yeah, it was being used in this meaning uh, in a moment. And uh, this person was objecting because they were saying, no, it should mean that it's just happening for a moment. Well, it's a quite useful word to use and to have it mean uh, in just a moment, this will be happening. And both meetings, unlike hopefully, are in common use because uh, you can pause momentarily in the middle of a sentence. Mm -hmm. That sense of it is more common than the other sense of hopefully, which is almost entirely switched over to it is to be hoped. Uh, and this is one borrowing, lending, loaning. You have lend versus loan. Right, and uh, loan me your hat was just as correct everywhere as lend me your ears until the British made lend the preferred verb, relegating loan to the thing being lent. However, as in so many cases, Americans kept to the older pattern, which in its turn has influenced modern British usage so that those insisting that loan can only be a noun are in the minority. So loan me your hat, lend me your hat, they work equally well in most places. It is still, uh, the objections are most likely to come from British people. Mm -hmm. And there is a sort of, would we call it a ruralism to say, borrow me your hat? Yes, that's where you're, you're changing you know, the person who's doing the lending to the point of view of the person getting it. And, uh, yeah. And that, that's definitely a colloquialism. Don't right. use that in formal context. Or that, we'll call that non-standard, I guess. Yeah, unless you're writing uh, you know, countrified diction, but it's pretty much a cliche. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here's one that people will, you know, this is one of those things where usage and grammar, which we talked about a little bit in the last episode, <laughs> This is none, and is it singular or plural? And if you think about it grammatically, you're going to tie yourself in knots and never get out. Right. But, but if you just think about it as a usage point, I think what you have to say is pretty straightforward. Right, and instead of trying to untie all those knots, the, one of the things about common errors in English usage that sets it apart from a lot of other usage guides is I don't want to go into every possible argument of the ins and outs of this. I want to give you a simple rule of thumb that can make it safe for you. Some people insist that since none is derived from no one, it should always be singular. None of us is having dessert. However, in standard usage, the word is most often treated as a plural. None of us are having dessert. 
will do just fine. And it can flip back and forth and you really have to ask yourself, which makes sense to me now in this context? And if it makes sense to you and you're a native speaker of English, then you've got it right. And there is an old spelling, N-A-N, for uh, none as well. And, and I forget the history of that, but you don't really need to know that to justify the usage here. It's just whatever sounds natural. Well, don't mention that N-A-N around those of us who are hungry and, and can eat gluten products because... <laughs> N A A N, right? N A A N, or sometimes put on the the Indian menu as N A N, N A N, or N A A N, as I guess is more correct. And that's the Indian bread. Uh, scanning and skimming. Now, I used to teach reading to non-native speakers of English. We used to really make a big point about scanning versus skimming a text. But now you're telling me that there's not a useful distinction? or Well, that it's not always a distinction. Those who insist that scan can never be a synonym of skim have lost the battle. It is true that the word originally meant to scrutinize, but it has now evolved into one of those unfortunate words with two opposite meanings. To examine closely, now rare, and to glance at quickly, much more common. It would be difficult to say which of these two meanings is more prominent in the computer-related usage to scan a document. That said, it's more appropriate to use scan to label a search for specific information in a text, and skim to label a hasty reading aimed at getting the general gist of a text. And that last one is exactly the sorts of things that reading teachers uh, want to emphasize. If you're scanning, you're looking for a certain you're looking for a certain word or a certain set of words, and if you're skimming, you're trying to skim over the whole thing quickly to get the idea of what the text is talking about, and that that's a useful distinction. Um, I like your next one off of. You wouldn't believe the amount of blowback I get from this. <laughs> there are certain things, which and that is another one, but off of there are some people that just really this sticks in their craw. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's just as natural as the air I breathe. And I can't remember if we have inside of in the book. I don't think so. To go inside of the house. Uh, some people are striking out that of as if it's, uh, you know, the worst crime against humanity to insert it. I don't like having extra words in there. That's why I'd like to leave it off. But uh, it's probably just as common as off of. Well, for most Americans, the natural thing to say is climb down off, or pronounce off of, that horse text with your hands in the air. But many UK authorities urge that the of should be omitted as redundant. Where British English reigns, you may want to omit the of as superfluous. Common usage in the US has rendered off of so standard as to generally pass unnoticed though some American authorities also discourage it in formal writing. But if onto makes sense, so does off of. However, off of meaning from in phrases like borrow $5 off of Clarice is definitely non-standard. Right. And uh, one that uh, is definitely listed in your common errors list, listed as an actual error that I just want to talk about quickly is... Um, based on versus based off of. 
Right. Now, um, you make the point, and that sensible point, that it's hard to picture or imagine that based off of, uh, for a, a movie to be based off of a book, the picture doesn't even really work. If it's based on a book, I can understand that. And it's almost an image in your head that works correctly. But more and more you see based off of being used. I think most commonly now you get based around. Okay, based around, yeah. Which drives me nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because there's a base and then there's something sitting on top of that base. I think of it in a very physical way and I think a lot of people don't. And so it gets very abstract and in educational settings and business settings and in government, every place, based around. This is based around the idea that blah, 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 blah. Around is really common for people who like vagueness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we're having discussions around the, the policy of absences at the school. And the, uh, yeah, that's not entirely incorrect, but it's just, it's vague and it, it muddies up. Is there a conflict? Is there a direct relationship? Is there a cause and effect? No, we're just sort of waiting around in this miasma of the round. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb, um, and I'm not sure how uh, steady this limb is, or, and I may be entirely wrong, but I believe um, that in my lifetime I have seen, I've seen these other forms based off of and based around become more prevalent uh, to the point where I can see my own children using based off of or based around much more frequently than I have ever used it in my lifetime. And in my lifetime, it has always sounded a little bit strange. Right. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like my perception. Well, this happens to be a, a pet peeve of mine. Some years ago, I was invited to write a feature for a new magazine called Blueprint. The magazine was uh, published by Martha Stewart Publications. This was aimed at young, single women and a design thing. They made a big mistake calling the magazine Blueprint. (laughs) That's in itself one of those things that exists now only as a metaphor since uh, architects don't use blueprints literally anymore. And uh, so a blueprint for living was the idea, but it wasn't something that really grabbed people. But I got to say, the Martha Stewart Corporation is the best editor I ever worked for in terms of pay. Um, the feature had to be very small, and I used to say it was less than a column, but more than a haiku. And I got $300 paid in advance for each one. And uh, one of them was uh, on this whole based on, based around sort of thing. It was fun while it lasted, uh, but the magazine collapsed. Well, that's too bad, and you lost your gig. <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, based on is a safer phraseology, let's just say, than some of these other ones. Uh, let's move back to the non-errors, though. Uh, you've got reference and cite. Uh, these are both, as I understand it, verbs. or can be verbs. Yeah, and the main uh, place we're going to run into this is academic papers, and particularly... Uh, Students writing term papers, which has uh, gotten more and more rare. Most teachers don't want to grade them, and the students don't want to write them, and um, where the citations are often not published very widely these days, except in the sciences. So um, it just sort of fades. But there are a lot of novices trying to struggle with how to say this. Nouns are often turned into verbs in English. 
and reference in the sense to provide references or citations has become so widespread that it's generally acceptable, though some teachers and editors still object and say you should cite your references rather than referencing a book. I see. Okay. And I think part of it is the feeling that to reference a book just means you're sort of mentioning the book, whereas to cite a book means you're quoting it or you're uh, taking a fact from it and then you're providing a, a note, an endnote, typically uh, a note in the old days. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty easily dispensed with one, but uh, this uh, next one's a little stickier. I feel bad. That's standard, but what is it with the word bad? Oh, well, boy, you get this all the time. I feel bad is standard English, as in, this t-shirt smells bad, not badly. I feel badly is an incorrect hypercorrection by people who think they know better than the masses. People who are happy can correctly say they feel good, but if they say they feel well, we know they mean to say they're healthy. Yeah, and I feel badly, um, we could slice and dice this adjective versus adverb or whatever, but once you think about it, I feel badly kind of means that your tactile sense isn't up to snuff, right? Yes, and that, that I've heard that argued, you know, that yeah, I feel badly would just mean that the touch receptors on your fingertips are damaged. Well, you must hear from people uh, that hypercorrection, I feel badly, uh, I mean that does get thrown around, and it and you almost feel sad and trying to be snooty about that one. <laughs> Say I'm sorry, but I feel bad is correct. Yeah, you know, if you just feel bad, that makes sense. I think it works a little better if you're saying I feel badly about the fact that I didn't send you a present on your birthday. Sure. Yeah. Um, when it's in the middle of a sentence, it's got something that's modifying. It's different. But there is a whole category of adjectives that can function as if they were adverbs. And that's, that's a well-known category that's clearly defined in grammar. And they have different meanings, as I pointed out. Similarly, I feel good is different from I feel well. I feel well means I'm not sick. I feel good made, means uh, I just got kissed. Yeah, and people, I think, understand that distinction better than the, you know, good being the adjective and well being the adverb. But people understand how that works with the word feel. Uh, It might have a more intuitive, a better intuitive understanding than the words bad and badly. And, of course, uh, Apple got into trouble for its big campaign. Think different. Or people said, that should have been differently. And part of it is self-referential. It said, we're being different. (laughs) We're saying this in a different way than people usually do. And they got huge publicity. So they annoyed a small minority of the population. And the rest of the population was giving a very powerful message. Apple really is different from other computer companies. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely effective. And, and if you try to parse that in your head a little bit, think different. You can construe that to have a different meaning from think differently. <laughs> So it played into Apple's hands perfectly all the way around, down the line. There's a think growth, okay, in a business context, you know. Think sales. That's become so common. I don't like it, but it's, you know, it's, it's standard usage. It emerged out of the business field, and it's everywhere now. Uh, so think different could mean think about differentness rather than think differently. Yes, 
Exactly. Yeah. And I think that was the way they were trying to put it out there. Well, I think they were trying to get both. You know, they had a, the famous pictures of very smart people like Einstein. Yes. Uh, along with this. So they were saying, these people are thinking intelligently, and they're thinking about really different things. Yes. Um, this is a, another fun one. Unquote versus end quote. Yeah. If you were listening to my last podcast and you heard me say quote and then end quote at the beginning and end of the quotations I was reading and it bothered you, this is for you. Some people get upset at the common pattern by which speakers frame a quotation by saying quote, unquote, insisting that the latter word should logically be end quote. But illogical as it may be, unquote has been used in this way for about a century and end quote is non-standard. Now, that about says it all. <laughs> There's not really much to add to that. Um, I've always been perfectly comfortable with a quote, unquote thing. Uh, but let's stop being uncomfortable about that, those of you who feel that way. Uh, how about persuade and convince? Oh, this is you know, rather old-fashioned and very picky. Some people like to distinguish between these two words by insisting that you persuade people until you have convinced them. But persuade as a synonym for convince goes back at least to the 16th century. It can mean both to attempt to convince and to succeed. It is no longer common to say things like, I am persuaded that you are an illiterate fool, but even this usage is not in itself wrong. So, Persuade can mean the same thing as convinced, and convinced can mean the same thing as persuade. Yeah. How about aggravate and irritate? Is there a similar thing going on there? Well, some people claim that aggravate can only mean make worse and should not be used to mean irritate. But the latter has been a valid use of the word for four centuries, and aggravation means almost exclusively irritation. You might say the... Uh, the infection aggravated the wound if you were doing a medical report or something, but um, for most people, aggravate always means to irritate. Okay, so we'll stop splitting so many hairs. Um, persuade and convince, aggravate, irritate. How about the word preventive? Now, preventive is an adjective. Some people insist preventive is an adjective, and preventative is a noun, and that's not to be messed around with. I must say I like the sound of this distinction, but in fact the two are interchangeable as both nouns and adjective, though many prefer preventive as being shorter and simpler. Preventative, used as an adjective, dates back to the 17th century, as does preventive as a noun. And this is one of those cases where people wrote me saying, you should put this in, this is an important distinction. And at first I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And so I did my research and I found I was wrong. And so were they. And I put it in here. So um, I want people to know that uh, it's not just that I'm being high-handed here and deciding on my own. Uh, you people who are being picky, I declare that you are wrong. It's, it's not like that. I do check. I try to find out. What do authoritative sources say about it? Here's another distinction people like to use, uh, which I'm giggling because it seems a little silly to get knotted up about this one, but people say a book is titled such and such rather than entitled such and such. Yeah, no less a writer than Chaucer is cited by the Oxford English Dictionary as having used entitled in this sense, the very first meaning of the word listed by the OED. It may be a touch pretentious, 
but it's not wrong. And I've had somebody answer that and say, well, yeah, Chaucer, you know, he's real old. And um, it's changed now. Well, I don't think so. Entitled still means entitled in, as it refers to things with titles like books and so on. Of course, when you're made a knight by the queen, you're not you're titled, but not entitled. Mm-hmm. Now, here's one. I mean, there is a distinction that could be made here, but it's not honored in any way in practical usage. Last week, I was out at a restaurant and I happened to order something that I don't normally order, which is the vegetable plate, which was a serving several servings of different vegetables prepared different ways around a bed of rice. And um, across the table from me, one of the dinner party looked at my plate and said, oh, that looks healthy. And I didn't bat an eye because I don't care about healthy uh, people are healthy, vegetables are healthful. Right. And you're lucky you were dining with somebody who thought you were doing a good thing, though. Some people use healthy in a negative sense. Ooh, that looks healthy. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Logic and tradition are on the side of those who make this distinction. But I'm afraid phrases like part of a healthy breakfast have become so widespread that they're rarely perceived as erroneous except by the hypercorrect. On a related, though slightly different subject, it is interesting to note that in English, adjectives connected to sensations in the perceiver of an object or event are often transferred to the object or event itself. In this case, the vegetables are healthy, healthy, not that they grew healthily, but that you will be healthy if you eat them. So the adjective actually belongs to you, but you're transferring it to the vegetables, right? In the 19th century, it was not uncommon to refer, for instance, to a grateful shower of rain. And we still say a gloomy landscape, a cheerful sight, and a happy coincidence. None of which uh, ever raise an eyebrow, but I would say more or less vegetables are healthy doesn't really raise an eyebrow either. How about uh, raising crops and rearing children? This strikes me as just incredibly old-fashioned, but I have run into other people who still maintain it. Old-fashioned writers insist that you raise crops and rear children, but in modern American English, children are usually raised. Mm-hmm. Because I was a teacher of English to non-native speakers, I sometimes had non-native English-speaking colleagues who also were teaching English And this one is definitely wrong, though. Whereas you raise a child, it's not correct to do what my colleague said. He said it's very difficult to grow a child. Now, that seems like, you know, raising crops and growing crops, that seems like it's kind of related, I guess. Uh, But ever since Bill Clinton's time, we've also had grow the economy, which always sits my teeth on edge. But it's become standard now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, crops are raised, children are reared, not a distinction, really. Children are are raised, and it even sounds strange to say children are reared these days. Right, yeah. Yeah, I agree, old-fashioned. How about uh, you've got mail? Some people say it needs to be you have mail. Right. We don't hear this one so much anymore because AOL is pretty well long gone. Right. Yeah, and and I think with Microsoft, too, used it for a long time. And, of course, the movie. Uh, you've got mail, made it stick in people's mind. And that led to certain picky people saying, you've got mail should be you have mail. The have contracted in phrases like this is merely an auxiliary verb, not an expression of possession. 
It is not a redundancy. Compare, you've sent the mail. You have sent the mail. It doesn't have anything to do with having it. It's simply the helping verb for putting the sent in the tense that you want. You have sent the mail. You have gotten some mail. You've got mail. Well, I think this whole thing falls in the category of overthinking the problem. and Exactly. Knowing just enough to get yourself in trouble, I guess. Now, here's a couple of expressions. We have three in a row here that are expressions that people uh, debate the correct usage of. The first one's pretty straightforward, I think. Uh, cut the mustard versus cut the mustard. Right. It seems like cut the mustard's what you what you want to say, um, but the word muster has a particular meaning that does kind of overlap, or people do construe it that it could be correct to say cut the mustard, but the expression is cut the mustard, right? Right. And there's been a lot of discussion of this. You can find extensive uh, arguments about it, but here's my entry. This etymology seems plausible at first. Its proponents often trace it to the American Civil War. We do have the analogous expression to pass muster, which probably first suggested this alternative. But although the origins of cut a mustard are somewhat obscure, the latter is definitely the term used in all sorts of writing throughout the 20th century. Common sense would suggest that a person cutting a muster is not someone being selected as fit, but someone eliminating the unfit. And there's some argument that uh, mustard was used as a, a general term for something good or outstanding or exciting in the 19th century uh, in a number of contexts. But the thing is, you just can't go back and find somebody saying, cut the mustard, except when they're criticizing, cut the mustard. It's just a mistaken analysis. But pass muster would be correct. You don't pass muster. Sure. Yeah. So it's just two different expressions, and, and one's, one goes one way and one goes the other. Now, this one's a little dicey, too. Um, there's the expression carrot on a stick and not carrot or the stick. Right. Authoritative dictionaries agree. The original expression refers to offering to reward a stubborn mule or donkey with a carrot or threatening to beat it with a stick and not to a carrot being dangled from a stick. This and other popular etymologies fit under the heading aptly called by the English, too clever by half. And this was discussed at some length in an old uh, Usenet news group, Alt Usage English. I haven't, and their Usenet has since gone, and they're now Google groups, and I don't even know if those are live anymore. I haven't checked into them in years. But um, they debated this expression several times and the last time I looked at it was the spring of 1998. No one there presented definitive evidence, uh, but the dictionaries agree that the proper expression is the carrot or the stick. One person on the web mentions an old little rascal's short in which an animal was tempted to forward motion by a carrot dangling from a stick. I think the image is much older than that, going back to old magazine cartoons, certainly older than the animated cartoons referred to by correspondents on alt and usage English. But I'll bet that the cartoon idea stemmed from loose association with the original phrase, the carrot or the stick, rather than the other way around. An odd variant is the claim broadcast on National Public Radio March 21, 1999, that one Zebediah Smith originated this technique of motivating stubborn animals. This is almost certainly an urban legend. 
Note that the people who argue for carrot on a stick never cite any documentable early use of the supposed correct expression. For the record, here's what the supplement to the Oxford English Dictionary has to say on the subject. Carrot. With allusion to the proverbial method of tempting a donkey to move by dangling a carrot before it. An enticement, a promised or expected reward. Frequently contrasted with stick equals punishment as the alternative. I skipped through references to uses as early as 1895, which refer only to the carrot, so don't clear up this issue because there's no stick mention. The Economist, 1948. The material shrinking of rewards and lightening of penalties, the whittling away of stick and carrot. Too bad the Economist writer switched the order in the second part of this example, but the distinction is clear. Uh, J.A.C. Brown, Social Psychology of Industry, 1954. The tacit implication that most men are solely motivated by fear or greed, a motive now described as the carrot or the stick. 1963, The Listener. Once Gomulka had thrown away the stick of collectivization, he was compelled to rely on the carrot of a price system favorable to the peasant. The debate has been confused from time to time by imagining one stick from which the carrot is dangled and another kept in reserve as a whip but I imagine that the original image in the minds of those who developed this expression was a donkey or a mule laden with cargo rather than being ridden, with its master alternately holding a carrot in front of the animal's nose by hand, not on a stick, and threatening it with a switch. Two sticks are too many to make for a neat expression. For me, the clincher is that no one actually cites the form of the, quote, original expression. In what imaginable context would it possibly be witty or memorable to say that someone or something had been motivated by a carrot on a stick? Why not an apple on a stick? Or a bag of oats? Boring, right? Not something likely to pass into popular usage. This saying belongs to the same general family as you can draw more flies with honey than with vinegar. It is never used except when such contrast is implied. The flip side of this is that uh, people have found it useful to use the expression carrot on a stick for something that's being dangled out in front as a motivator. Um, but in all likelihood, it seems that's derived from the carrot or the stick. And it's just hearing those two things together that has turned it into another useful little expression. Oh, you know, they're just dangling a carrot on a stick. But uh, it seems to me logical that that came from hearing those two words together in this other context. Yeah, for some reason, this reminds me of one of my favorite snacks when the ice cream truck used to come around in junior high and I'd buy a chocolate dip banana on a stick. Mm-hmm. Carrot wouldn't have been nearly as good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about another expression um, that has a, some controversy surrounding it? People go one way or the other. So spitting image... Uh, some people say that should be spit and image or that spit and image was the original and spit and image was a shortening of it or what, what, anyway, how does it go? Right. Well, they've got a little bit of a point. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the earlier form was spitten image, S-P-I-T-T-E-N, um, which may indeed have evolved from spit and image. It's a crude figure of speech. Someone else is enough like you to have been spat out by you, made of the very stuff of your body. In the early 20th century, the spelling and the pronunciation gradually shifted to the less logical spitting image, which is now standard. 
it's too late to go back. There is no historical basis for the claim sometimes made that the original expression was spirit and image. Yeah. By the way, I have a spitting image of a uh, fountain in Paris with a sphinx spitting out <laughs> wire of fountain. That's quite striking. Well, it's not quite what we're talking about, but <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So here's a case you you cannot rely on etymology. You know, your usage rules, and when almost everybody is using spitting image, you can't put things into reverse and go back to spit and image. Mm-hmm. But I think people want to get away from thinking that it has to do with spit because that's that's uh, pretty low. And um, you know, raising it up to, oh, it must have come from spirit and image because, oh, back then uh, everybody was so high-minded. They were only thinking of spirit and image, right? But there's no... Um, no basis for that, right? It really was coming out of this spit. Yeah, something that's not exactly an error is that you will often hear journalists who are discussing the vice presidency uh, quoting John Nance Garner, who has said that his uh, the office of the vice presidency was not worth a bucket of warm spit. In fact, what he said referred to an entirely different bodily fluid that was considered not proper for newspapers. So spit gets substituted for it all the time. Uh-huh. Interesting. Okay. I, I didn't know that. Well, I have one more on the list here, and it's an appropriate ending to our conversation. I'll tell you why when you get done telling us why connoisseur is spelled the way it is, whereas the French do actually spell it a different way. This is one that doesn't lend itself as well as some to speaking aloud because it has to do with a subtle spelling difference. When we borrowed this word from the French in the 18th century, it was spelled the same way we do now, C-O-N-N-O-I-S-S-E-U-R. Is it our fault the French later decided to shift the spelling of many O-I words to the more phonetically accurate A-I? What happened is, of course, the pronunciation shifted and it took a long time for the French to acknowledge that in their standard spellings. Of those Francophone purists who insist that we should follow their example, I say, let them eat biftec. Well, that's how the French spell beefsteak, B-I-F-T-E-C-K. If they can get away with that, we should be able to get away with connoisseur, which was a correct spelling historically. Right. So let's just keep it the way it was when we adapted it. And we don't speak French anyway, so we don't have to follow that. But uh, let him eat BiffTech appropriate ending because uh, this has been a very meaty conversation. Yes. I'm alluding in that last phrase, let him eat BiffTech to the famous Let Em Eat Cake, uh, which is attributed to Marie Antoinette, who's supposed to have said when told that there wasn't enough bread for the French people to eat, that they should uh, let them eat brioche, which is a kind of cake made of flour, butter, and eggs. They can't eat bread. Let's think they should eat some. She wasn't being defiant. She was just being kind of stupid. <laughs> Understanding it wasn't just there was a shortage of one particular kind of baked good. It was There was no flour. Uh, problem with that one is there's no evidence of any kind that Marie Antoinette ever said anything like them. Uh, there are all sorts of things attributed to her to make her look like a bad person. Uh, she was a pretty bad person, but not as bad as the revolution tried to make her seem. So uh, it gets... Uh, it's attributed first uh, to somebody else entirely by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And then 
other people uh, pick it up and, and use it in different ways. And it floats around. And Well, it has a long history. You can look it up in the Phrase Finder uh, at www.phrases.org.uk. That's a really nice essay on it. So, um, you know, don't assume that uh, Marie Antoinette actually said, let him eat cake. Yeah, it's just one of those things that gets <laughs> thrown around and yeah, there's a convenient person who might have said something like that. So let's just say that she said it. That's good enough for a lot of people. All right. Well, Paul, thanks for running down this list. Like I said, it has been a meaty conversation and uh, and also um, a kind of a sweet one. So the cake and the steak are both appropriate. Okay. All right. Thanks, Paul. Bye. Talk to you next time. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.